Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 12th, 2023, the Gaza War edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon, of course, of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John is out this week with a family commitment. No worries, because we have Juliet Kayyem, professor at Harvard's Kennedy School and former assistant secretary for Homeland Security. Hello, Juliet from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Good morning, everyone. This week on the GabFest, the war in Gaza and how it could destabilize Israel and the Middle East, then how the war in Israel will spill over into American politics, and then the continuing trash fire that is the Republican effort to select new Speaker of the House of Representatives. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And just a reminder, we're coming to Madison. No more tickets for our show in Madison on October 25th, but we are thrilled to announce our guest is going to be Governor Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin is going to join us on stage at the Majestic Theater on October 25th at 7.30 p.m. So those of you who have tickets, we can't wait to see you there. Fancy. We're fancy people. We are fancy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The war between Israel and Hamas has taken thousands of lives already. It will take thousands more, some soldiers, but many innocent people. Hamas started this war with a spectacular, and I'm sure to their light, successful mass suicidal attack in Israel in which thousands of armed men broke into southern Israel from Gaza and committed terrorist mass murder and mass kidnapping of the most shocking and sickening sort against Israelis. It was the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust, according to some. The attack was a total surprise, thanks to what appears to have been a complete intelligence failure by the vaunted Israeli intelligence agencies. It has already been met with a massive response. Israel has mobilized more than 300,000 Reservists has been bombing and shelling Gaza nonstop and is preparing for what will almost certainly be a ground invasion that will be, I suspect, one of the bloodiest and most destructive urban battles in world history. Netanyahu and the entire Israeli establishment, now in a unity government, are vowing to wipe out Hamas as a military threat. And doing that is going to require a comprehensive war. And it will cost thousands of lives, mostly Palestinian but also those of Israeli soldiers and Israeli hostages. So there is so much to talk about. This is just so sad and so disturbing. But Juliet, let's start with the beginning of this, which is how did Hamas succeed in surprising Israel? And why do you think they attacked with such brutality and inhumanity and shocked the world with that brutality? Yeah, let me start with the first part and then speculate more or just, you know, what people wiser than me are saying about the second piece. What is this about and why now? So as you noted, spectacularly violent attack on Israel, terrorist attack on civilians in Israel was met by a spectacularly surprising intelligence and military failure by Israel. Why were they caught so flat-footed? So first of all, 
Netanyahu to keep his coalition together has sort of divvied up pieces of the military and priorities within the military to parts of his even more right-wing coalition. That sort of distribution has upset the traditional chain of command that had existed in the Israeli military and intelligence agencies. And that had been noted for the last year, that change, that whether that concession itself led to the 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 lack of response we we don't know but these are just the elements that go into it the second is of course the priorities of distribution of their intelligence efforts, whether it was north uh, with Hezbollah or uh, to protect the Jewish settlements, whatever the cause, it is just clear that Israel did not have the ground game in terms of intelligence gathering that we thought they had. And we know what that ground game is. It is signal intelligence. It is human intelligence. It is buying people off to get information. The numbers look like over a thousand Hamas members were able to penetrate what we thought was an impenetrable border. The third reason is probably over-reliance on technology, including the Iron Dome, that simply got overwhelmed in the first minutes. Uh, We know that Hamas was able to target uh, what the command and control center, technology center, so that Israel was essentially deaf and blind for those first couple of, you know, 24, 36 hours. And then I think that goes to the last part. Uh, It's one thing, you know, everyone calls this their 9-11. I wrote in the Atlantic, I thought that was a crutch because Israel has known the threat around it as compared to, say, the United States that's couldn't conceive of the kind of threat that we faced on 9-11. What was also surprising was how long it took for Israel to get Hamas out of its country and to secure the border, a border that has technology and all sorts of signals and all sorts of triggers to make sure that it's not penetrated. So that's the narrative of what in fact happened, the horror we know, but just in terms of sort of the operational side. As to why now you know, one explanation is simply Hamas wants, as they've stated in their constitution, the eradication of Israel, period. That never goes away, no matter how many concessions or how much discussions are going on between Israel and Hamas, reminding people that just 10 days before Saturday, the border was reopened to Gaza with Palestinians being given work permits to be able to work. Uh, so Israel certainly thought that this, these kinds of negotiations would be uh, fruitful. Other, other theories are that the negotiations between between Saudi Arabia and Israel were uh, not beneficial for Hamas in terms of the long term, and they wanted to disrupt them in terms of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This is something that Iran does also does not like, and they support Hamas. A third speculation that you're reading now is that they were spectacularly more successful than they ever envisioned, and they don't have a plan B. What we're seeing now is simply Hamas letting the Palestinians, who most of them are not members of Hamas, die for their horrors. And that's what we're seeing now. So that those are the reasons why how this ends and is as, as good a guess, but we certainly know what the next week looks like in terms of essentially isolating Gaza and the kinds of aerial bombardment that you're seeing right now. Juliet, in the Atlantic, you call this an everything failure, yeah. and that's been kind of useful to me this week. So you talked about some of the layers, you know, this reliance on this fence that proved very penetrable. I mean, I think Israelis thought that because they had built a wall to block people from coming in by tunnels, that they weren't going to be able to cross. And then you have, you know, paragliders coming by air, and then most people just coming through holes they had blown in this fence. And then I think for a lot of us, the most shocking part was the 
delay and response, the idea that there are soldiers in their bases being killed in their beds, and that the people inside Israel, in kibbutzim and towns inside Israel, had so little protection and waited so many hours for help. There's also a policy failure, a set of policy failures here, right? I mean, Netanyahu had basically decided that he would rather have Hamas have a certain amount of strength in Gaza in order to divide the Palestinians between Hamas's leadership in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And that was he was that was the price worth paying. And there's this kind of terrible Israeli phrase about mowing the grass, which means kind of going in periodically and taking Hamas down enough that it's not supposed to have this kind of level of power to have an attack. And that obviously, they were just completely and utterly wrong. And as someone, I mean, I've talked about this before, who has zero faith in Bibi Netanyahu's leadership, I just feel like this is a terrible price for both sides to pay for these like really profound set of errors that didn't need to happen. And the idea that now we're going to have this like incredibly bloody and destabilizing escalation, yes, because of Hamas's enmity towards Israel, but also because of this terrible leadership. It's just unfathomable to me. It's so unjust. Juliet, why do you think they attacked with such brutality and such cruelty. It is it is one thing to launch an invasion, to go after bases, to go after police stations. It is quite another to intentionally have a plan to slaughter as many people as you can and kidnap. I mean, that act of kidnapping is truly like, you know, real biblical throwback. It's real like I'm listening to a podcast about Assyrian civilizations, like it's a throwback to Assyria in 700 BC. Why? Yeah. What is the point so, of that? So there's two two reasons. So first, of course, is the strategic. Uh, if you get hostages, it just makes the calculation by Israel about how they're going to go in that much harder. And since we now know that they're transparency in terms of what's happening in the Gaza is quite limited. Otherwise, they probably would have predicted this or at least responded to it better, means they likely have no idea. And we certainly likely have no idea of where the hostages are. So it's just a calculation which will not benefit the those who are hostages. I think that just the decision not to bring in, or at least the delay in ground troops now and the just the bombings, you know, those are just indiscriminate and you're going to hit your own hostages. The second, though, is obviously the symbolic win, and I'm putting this in quotes so people could see, see me win by Hamas, of both the overwhelming defeat of Israel, at least in those first 36 or 48 hours, of everything, not just Israel's strength in defending itself, its image of itself in terms of being able to defend itself, right? We, we believe both that they can do it and we believe in a mythology about Israel's strength in being able to survive amongst all these enemies. So both that strategic and symbolic destruction of Israel in the violence, in the horror, in the inability of Israel to protect its citizens was part of a narrative that Hamas certainly is, as we now see, selling, in quotes, right? In other words, they have, they now have this narrative, which is horrific, and we've all seen the images. So that's basically why terrorist groups, let's just be clear, you know, terrorist groups, they want a lot of people watching, and they want a lot of people dead, right? And that's what Hamas got. David, what did you think about that part of it in particular? I mean, I think, I mean, what Juliet said, I agree with. I just always go back to the fact that, at least to me, maybe to my liberal Western eyes, by far the most successful effort by Palestinians 
in my lifetime was the non-violent effort in the 80s, early 90s, the quiet intifada, as it were, the the non-cooperation and the submission to Israeli, to show the world Israel's brutality of occupation. And it got them so much more, and it got them a level of economic stability and prosperity that they have not seen, and of freedom of movement, and of territory, and of uh, international acclaim and recognition. It is so sad and frustrating that these this community has been taken over by people who, for reasons of machismo, for reasons of honor, pride, whatever it is, feel like the only way to win is to inflict pain on others rather than accept a little bit of pain for yourself in exchange for something greater later. It's terrible. It's a tragic situation. They, w- I, I mean, everyone knows, I think everyone who looks at this knows that had the Palestinians continued with a, a sort of nonviolent approach, they would be in such better shape. Everyone and Israel would be, <laughs> be in better shape and the world would be in better shape. And instead, we're not. I mean, we should. We have to add in like social media, the way that these slick, some of them quite slickly produced images have just traveled everywhere. And the way in which, you know, there's this link of like no holds barred brutality of other kinds of groups. I mean, Ann Applebaum wrote a good essay comparing these tactics to those of Putin in Ukraine, that there's this sense in which the norms of international law, and they may have been weak, but they were they had more power than more hold than they have now. And, you know, you just see these groups trying to seem ascendant, right? The power is the most important element, not abiding by a kind of rules of civilization. We are about to face what will be, or we're not about to face, thank goodness for us and our families, but the, the people of Gaza and the people of Israel are about to face a truly bloody, deadly campaign that will kill and probably imprison Gazans by the tens of thousands. It will immiserate that territory. Even if they break the war fighting ability of Hamas, there's going to be so much suffering. How can Israel, Juliet, accomplish what it seeks to accomplish, but not inflict both an immoral amount of violence on the people of Gaza, number one, and a kind of backfiring amount of violence on the people of Gaza. Right now, Israel has the moral high ground here. How can it do this without losing that moral high ground. I would mark that moral high ground in hours, not days or weeks. I mean, or or maybe days, but not weeks. I'm not even sure. I mean, I think, I'm not sure I agree with the phrase moral high ground. I mean, it has the world's sympathy right now for having suffered this terrible attack. Okay, fair enough. And as I often say, you know, the debates in Israel are much more interesting than the debates in the United States where everyone has to pick sides. I mean, you know, Israel is a, a country, as we know, that, that uh, whose citizens are torn apart about uh, strategy, about religion, as Emily was saying, about policies towards the Palestinian Authority and the specific choice to undermine the Palestinian Authority in support of Hamas to simply in, in some ways, maybe stop the kind of movement by the Palestinians that you were describing that when we were growing up that we saw. Let me just tell you what Israel says. So Isra- Israel says that they have two missions with going into to Gaza. One is, of course, the leadership of Hamas, get the leadership of Hamas. They are all dead men, to, to quote Israeli leaders. The second is to ensure that Hamas cannot govern that second piece, I don't know how I finished that sentence. In other words, okay, what what comes after that? That those missions, however, e- even if correct, 
are not aligned right now with operational strategy, which is indiscriminate bombings that we have to believe are indiscriminate. I mean, everyone who's reporting on it is just, you know, buildings are going down, whatever. And also the isolation, greater isolation in terms of electricity, water, resources, medical help for the over 2 million uh, uh, people who live in Gaza who are not members of Hamas. And so that gap is not sustainable. And so whether they change their mission or change their strategy, I don't know, but I have people have to be prepared that a ground, people in Israel are certainly prepared that a ground war in Gaza is, is not safe for anyone. I mean, including the Israeli soldiers. Weapons were stored in ways that we had no idea uh, to attack on Saturday. The idea th- that they've expended their capacity to defend themselves is ridiculous and pie in the sky. This is going to be horrible uh, for all involved. I understand the idea that Israel appears weak and they have to get some appearance of strength back, right? I never know really what lies under those sorts of like geopolitical calculations, but I get that they have to respond. What I don't understand is how in this incredibly densely packed region of 2 million people that is filled with tunnels and filled with hiding places where the leadership probably isn't even there, they're going to do what they say they're going to do, like topple Hamas, dismantle Hamas. What actually underlies those phrases? And how do you do anything that is acceptable under international law, has any shred of proportionality. I I just don't, I literally don't understand. But Emily, like, I hear you. What would you have them do? Yeah. I, I guess what I'm still holding out hope for is some idea of like, the goal here is to keep Israel safe, to keep the people in Israel safe. And so what are the responses that signal enough strength that are strategic, that have some kind of short timeline, I think, that then don't backfire in all these like incredibly predictable ways, right? Overreaction is its own danger. And this idea that Gaza is a trap, like it's literally a trap filled with all these tunnels, just seems overwhelming to me. I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm no military strategist. I don't know how you make some kind of set of surgical strikes that signal to the world that yes, you've responded. But the mismatch here between what seems about to unfold and what the actual tactical and strategic plan could be just seems so big to me, right? I mean, another way to think about this is like, yes, Hamas had all of these munitions stored and they were ready for an attack that nobody expected. But they are not some major military force, right? They are not the army of any country. And so in a sense, like it's pretty easy to make sure this doesn't happen again. You defend your border. You make sure that a lot of your troops are not off, you know, defending the Jewish settlements in the West Bank where you have no business to be Anyway, and in the end, the way that you take out Hamas is that you provide some kind of path back to peace for this dispossessed people. I know that seems utterly remote right now, but it's still the only thing that's going to really change the dynamic in the neighborhood. I think one of the things that I noticed in the language that we've seen coming out of Israel is there's this very right wing government and it's a Jewish nationalist government in many most ways. And the description of Hamas as animals, the, the language of dehumanization is very unsettling to me. Again, it's like, I do, I actually don't see an alternative. If you were in Israel, I'm sure that if I were in Israel right now, I would be like, we got to invade and we got to 
cause as much damage as we can. That idea that the people who are being invaded are not somehow like you. They are not human beings. They're not children like your children and wives like your wives and boys like your boys is sad. It's unconscionable. And it also, again, it backfires. And like, no, you know, using words like that is not the same thing as actually like murdering people in their sleep or, you know, kidnapping children and old people, but it is dehumanizing. And in so that sense, like it is falling to the level of your attackers. Yeah. I mean, that's the nature of a situation like that. It, it, it like it alters the oppressed as much as the oppressor. And then you could just decide who is whom in my sentence, right? So both parties are impacted by the status quo. I, I mean, I just want to raise two political potential solutions. So the first is, of course, that there is a moderate Palestinian network that can rise out of these ashes and figuring out ways in which the international community and the Arabs, as I say, who have been spectacularly unhelpful as well for the Palestinian cause, looking at you, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, can assist in that effort. So there might be a potential. There's very strong, moderate Palestinian voices from the two-state solution days who still exist. The second is, and you know, this I am hardly an expert on domestic Israel politics, but you know, I listen enough and I read enough. You know, does Netanyahu survive this? I mean, it is this is what he was about. You give him all the power in the world, destroy the Supreme Court because our security needs it. And the voices within Israel, progressive and liberal, but even moderate voices you're starting to hear that are now, you know, after the horrors of this weekend, able to just take a, a deep breath and say, wait a second, this was the quid pro quo. You got to be horrible in all the ways that we knew BB to be horrible and corrupt and all those things, but you were going to protect us. And and whether that comes to, to hurt BB or make him stronger, I don't think it's at all clear. Before we get to our next segment, I want to thank our Slate Plus listeners because of Slate Plus listeners like you, We've been able to keep the GabFest going for so long, and Slate Plus members get lots of stuff for their subscription, bonus segments on every episode, special discounts on live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and so much more. And this week in our Slate Plus segment, we're going to be talking about RFK Jr.'s run as an independent for president, his quixotic run, annoying run. So if you are a member of Slate Plus, thank you enjoy it. If you're not a member of Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, 
or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're now going to turn to the impact of the war on American politics and foreign policy. In the same way, the Ukraine war reset global politics outside of Ukraine and continues to reset it. This war is going to spill into geopolitics, and it's going to spill into American politics. At the moment, the overwhelming majority of American politicians have clearly taken Israel's side, 95% backing statements supporting Israel in the House, President Biden calling Hamas evil. The United States has sent a carrier group to the Eastern Mediterranean, will undoubtedly be sending huge amounts of military aid soon. You know, it, it arrives at a time when the U.S. has been trying very hard to broker a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, a deal whose likelihood is now either greater or lesser. I don't even know. Let's start with that. So, Juliet, would you say that given what's happened, uh, that deal is more likely to, to come soon or is now indefinitely put off? What we know is put off, right, is the internal Israeli dynamics of of Netanyahu wanting more power over the judiciary, which he has said explicitly is not going to happen now to get a unified Israel. On the geopolitics side of it, it, Saudi Arabia really wants this deal. What people need to understand is that there's a lot that the United States is giving to Saudi Arabia to grease the runway for this deal. The crown prince Uh, wants it. It will be a huge success for him in the Arab world. We'll establish Saudi Arabia as a counter to Iran and also benefit Saudi Arabia's attempts at modernization, that it's not in the, you know, Israel is the devil world of... But wait, but Julia, just to interrupt there, I mean, why, if Israel wages a quite bloody campaign in Gaza and is seen killing Muslim Arabs by the thousands and tens of thousands on the streets of of Gaza City, is that really going to be something that Saudi Arabia is going to be excited about to be the partner of Israel? Yeah. I mean, there's no street in Saudi Arabia that they have to respond to. The Saudis are, you know, and this is so ge- general. I mean, obviously, there's a, a tie to the Palestinians. But if I look at 40 years of the Arab states assisting the Palestinians in a nonviolent approach to a resolution of a problem that nobody seems invested in solving, I would say that the Saudi government now will get over this and that the arms and the money and the access that they will get out of this deal with the United States and Israel far outweighs the long term. The short term, I think you're right. I think everyone sort of goes to their corners, but I am not at all convinced that this piece of what might have motivated Hamas actually will de- derail all of it. I'm going to say, I don't know, but I'm not convinced given that all parties still are invested in it, right? I mean, all three parties are still invested in it. Well, I hope that it changes 
somebody's calculation. It should change Israel's, certainly the United States calculation about what it should include. I mean, this whole idea of skipping over the Palestinians and bypassing their interests and that Israel can, you know, in this high handed manner, and this was true about the Abram Accords with Bahrain and other smaller Arab nations. I just think that is part of the poisonous dynamic here. It's immoral and wrong, but also I think it is backfiring as a political and international strategy. Dynamic being, what's poisonous? Having these deals, the idea that Israel and Saudi Arabia are going to have a deal that would not include major concessions to the Palestinians. I mean, I think the Biden administration has been trying to include some gains for Palestinians in that. I think now that should be a higher priority. And maybe that seems counterintuitive given what's just happened. But if you think about what is, again, what it could actually make Israel safer in the long term, make the world better place for, you know, Palestinians who have suffered tremendously. That's what it would be. I know the Saudis don't really care about it, but I think it's in everyone's interest to make it happen. It should be a higher priority than it seems like it has been. And in the medium term, if this deal is going to happen, it should be about building up that more moderate Palestinian leadership you were talking about, Juliet. I'm not sure it's in Israel's national security self-interest to put the priority of the Palestinians above. I mean, if they can get a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with UAE, with Qatar, it's like pretty good to like the most powerful militaries in the region to know that they're not going to be attacking you. That seems like a really great deal. Yeah. The moral issues you raise, Emily, are exactly right. But <laughs> I'm Lebanese, so I can talk about Arabs this way. I think I feel like I said the Arabs are, are my people. But, you know, t- tell me when the monarchs and the Arabs have prioritized the Palestinian cause, but for when it's useful for them politically. Egypt knows what it could do to help uh, the Palestinians in Gaza and refuses to do it. Yeah, I see all of that. What I'm arguing, I think, is from the point of view of Israel, that yes, sure, those kinds of treaties are useful, but those countries have not attacked and bedeviled Israel all these many years. It's the Palestinians who live next door who pose the security threat, right? And so in order to change that dynamic, and also, frankly, to have some shred of hope in making Israel continue to be or try to be again, both a Jewish and a democratic state, there has to be some resolution, right? And so this is an opportunity for the United States, at least, to put pressure in that direction. Let's move to the U.S. We've seen, of course, there's 100% Republican support for what Israel is doing, and there's overwhelming Democratic support at the moment. We also saw that when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was something similar. Do you think we're likely to see support for Israel wither in the U.S. if this war goes on or gets too bloody? Or are people kind of like, whatever, they've been hit so hard, they can do whatever they want? So there's going to be two pieces to this. One is going to be, mostly on the Democratic side, is going to be people wanting the Biden administration to reconsider its recent deal with Iran regarding the release of assets for hostages uh, that are being um, held by Qatar right now. It's complicated, but there's a whole process by which uh, Iran can access that money for humanitarian and social needs. And it's $5 billion, right? $5 billion, yeah. So that is going to be debated. That money hasn't been released uh, yet. But I think it's not just the Americans. I mean, I think, you know, the unified statement by the European leaders as well against what happened is important, but it will only sustain through 
clear evidence that Israel has a limited mission, and it's not to flatten a place where plus 2 million people live. And I think that you are going to see both political and social criticisms of that strategy. You're already seeing it. And so I just don't think it can sustain itself that long. I think we will be having a different conversation in 10 days, depending on what Israel decides. Yeah. I mean, I have found myself so torn about President Biden's response. I mean, mostly in an emotional sense, I have deeply appreciated how upset and frankly angry he is and how much he seems to understand the history of images and photographs we have of pogroms and of the Holocaust and how this resonates for Jews to see that kind of bloody scene unfold in Israel and the pain of that. I really honestly like thank President Biden for that. On the other hand, he has to be a voice of restraint. I mean, he is the person who can stop Israel from making terrible mistakes that are not actually in their strategic or anyone's humanitarian interest. And there can't be a blank check for Israel right now, or at least like it has to be extremely short, that kind of attitude. I just cannot see how it's going to work. What do you think, Emily, the Democrats should do about their DSA problem? What? How should they talk to people who are on the left wing of the party, the progressives who have been very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, who some of whom have spoken out in support of Hamas after this attack? I mean, look, I think that there's, well, I guess I'll just answer personally, not really on behalf of the Democrats. There is much justice in the Palestinian cause. In the end, though, there is a fundamental divide between thinking that Israel has a right to exist and that the Palestinians should occupy the river to the sea. And for me, it is just fundamentally unsettling to realize that the left is now in a place where it parts of it don't think that Israel has the right to exist. And I think that's a breaking point within the left. I think it is a historical set of ideas about that particular land and also about Jews and what it's like to be uh, uh, Jews in the world. And it's you know, like to use the word disappointing doesn't even begin to cover it. But I think that actually that initial response of the DSA and the, you know, and the the groups on various campuses that have probably gotten too much attention, but have been incredibly, I think, thoughtless and, and countenancing murder in their responses. I actually think that the backlash to that has been pretty successful and a relief to me to see you know, people are entitled to their views, obviously, but I think the idea that if that's what the DSA is going to stand for, it is going to be marginalized is and sidelined is important for democratic politics. And also just the basic idea that, you know, the left should be about protecting innocent lives and that last weekend was not the moment to forget that seems really important. Juliet, you are a Harvard professor. Harvard has been riven with a statement. It's all about us, buddy. Of- it's all about us. We got it to, you know, I'm joking. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, I'm just saying like only Harvard will make it all about Harvard. Well, God. it's not just Harvard making it all about Harvard. I know. I know. But w- where does it, where do you feel on the Harvard campus right now? I mean, you, you're in your airy, fairy, beautiful office, gold-plated office. It's uh, not gold wood. You're looking at my office. It's got this. So I, you know, look, I mean, you know, I had one student leave. He's Israeli to go be with his family. I don't know. He did not tell me. And I don't know if he's going to go serve and leaving for good. I have 
several Arab students whose families are in Lebanon or have fled Gaza. I mean, look, this is all the horror that Emily and all of us are talking about. It gets played out. The university should reflect the world. So let me just be clear here. The original statement by the Muslim groups, which, you know, it's not at all clear, the vetting process and that, that went through it was horrific, you know, full stop. Like, I don't need qualifications. It was horrific, period, full stop. That's it. The reaction to it by people who either elevate the role of student groups within universities to have been proponents of free speech in other arenas, pure free speech, and have criticized the left for silencing diversity of viewpoints. Now, all of a sudden, you know, want universities to to clamp down on it. Uh, So that hypocrisy is a little bit hard for me to take at times. But third and most importantly, these adults here, those who are playing out this on Twitter and alumni who are launching attacks on individuals and telling employers never to employ these people, whatever, we are the adults, right? I mean, yes, these are grad students or undergrads, whatever. You know, we've got 33 or four or five, six decades on these people, uh, on these kids, we know what happens when we use a Twitter following of a million or 700,000 to launch attacks on student groups. And it happened. Doxing, target attacks, the threat level is higher here. We've gotten messages from the police department. Student groups and individuals have trucks running around JFK Street with the names of students who had signed it. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, that's the thing. What do you think is going to happen? Not to mention that some of those students didn't sign on individually. Didn't sign on. And then you have the added tension that the Israeli students feel that their country has been attacked and Jewish students, American, Israeli, or otherwise, feel that their religion is under attack and they don't know what happens next. And so my plea is adults act as adults and understand the consequences of what it is. Don't everyone to their camps and whether we say the right words and if we say them fast enough, like none of it is relevant to what is happening in Israel and the protection of Israel. And it's, but it's just part of, you know, how universities have come to be lightning rods. And I'm, you know, I'm here. I, I believe universities can be helpful or, you know, Emily's at one, you know, with our knowledge of law and religion and history and peace and war and all that stuff. And we should stick to our lane and be helpful in that regard. I would like to see on campuses more learning and interest in uncovering this history and delving into it and less social media, less speechifying, because I think so many of what the students groups are saying are are just relatively empty. I mean, maybe I'm making an excuse for them, but I would like to think that some of it is just ignorance. And one of the other parts of the university landscape that I've gotten deeply frustrated with is this impulse to make statements about really complicated issues. And then, you know, if you make a statement about the murder of George Floyd, but you don't make a statement about some other terrible tragedy, what does that say to the group that is not being spoken to? I mean, I was feeling some of that over the weekend, even though I hate these statements. And so I was heartened to see that the new president and provost of Stanford put out a statement saying that they are endorsing institutional neutrality as their general policy. They're just going to like stop making these statements. And I think their rationale for this just makes a lot of sense. This They said, you know, Stanford, they were speaking for their university as a community of scholars, and they don't want to be chilling speech by taking a political stand or just wading into issues that 
are really complicated and that it's very hard to craft some simple bromide about. So maybe that is a step that other universities, including mine, can take as well. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. House Republicans on Wednesday voted in their conference, in their group, their club, their House Republican club. They voted to put forward Steve Scalise, who's been the majority leader for House Speaker, then immediately delayed any effort to bring Scalise's nomination to the House floor for a vote. They adjourned the House because Republicans remain utterly divided on what should happen now. Scalise got a majority of 113 House Republicans to 99 over his opponent, Jim Jordan. But Jordan supporters and people within the House Republican caucus oppose Scalise, and they're not going to let this happen easily. So the House sits speakerless. Emily Scalise did win this internal vote. He's the kind of white supremacist adjacent, but more gentlemanly Southern candidate, whereas Jordan is the kind of really angry MAGA Ohio guy. But why did Scalise not just walk into the speakership once he won that majority? Why why have the Republicans not coalesced and been like, let's get this rat fuck done with? Because they still have defectors among them. And because he has to also overcome the opposition of the Democrats, he can only afford to lose like three or four people. And obviously, he's not there yet. And they're not done with their just like internal hot mess. Yeah. So we have the same problem, Juliet, we've had for months, which is this cadre of- We don't have this problem. The GOP has this problem. We as a nation have this problem. <laughs> well, there is a no nation. house functioning and the country may shut have the government shut down because of their problem. Yeah, in the mid-November, they've got to get a budget, something passed by mid-November. These chaos-loving, institution-hating Trumpists in the House won't play along. So what do you think Scalise is going to have to agree to to get the speakership? Is he going to have to- find a way to get some Democrats to vote for him? Or is he going to- He won't get any. Or maybe it can't be him. Maybe somebody it, He else. won't get any Democrats. Santa Claus. I mean, that, that's a fantasy land. The Democrats are, it's not their responsibility and they should hold firm and they gain nothing until one of two things happens. You get enough Republicans to vote for the Democratic choice for Speaker of the House, which also probably won't happen, or they pick a more moderate. Both of these men denied certification of the election. So the idea that that these are moderating forces tells you sort of where our discussion has gone at, at this stage. Neither of them, because for that reason, can moderate that wing of eight or 10, which is just growing. I mean, Mace was never thought to be, you know, crazy lady. And now she's, who knows what her agenda is and stuff. So I think it's still Scalise. I think that if you just actually listen, it's not at all clear that all of them are going to go against him. And there's just a lot of ill will within the party right now, but they will at least align around him until he can't do it anymore. And we may just see one after the other after the other until either something breaks in the next election or there is some coalition that can get behind a moderate candidate. But, you know, I just the idea that the Democrats, I know you both said like this is America. America's problem, but it, it's the obvious result of a party that two years ago 
could have stopped this. And so there's no surprises here, right? I mean, we all knew that this was where it was heading. And the idea that the Republicans seem surprised that they can't govern is like, hello. Who was that that British prime minister who served for 45 days? Trust. Liz Trust. Yeah, I, I feel like this is where we're going to head with Republican speakers, that if Scalise or Jordan or my aunt or anybody else becomes the House speaker with this group, it is, seems untenable that they can hold on to it because we approach yet another budget deadline. And Emily, how on earth could the House Republicans as currently constituted and with the anger at McCarthy for making a, you know, a pretty anodyne deal, how can they possibly pass anything that will, that will satisfy their members? I mean, it seems like if they're going to let a small number of people run the show and because of their slim margin, I'm not sure what choice they have, they're not going to pass something. I mean, I understand that there's a difference between Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, but they have both denounced McCarthy's decisions to prevent us not paying off our debts and to prevent the shutdown. So in the end, aren't they signaling that they are going to let the shutdown happen? And how much like real substantive difference is there here? I think... Last week, or when McCarthy was toppled, I had was holding out the idea of like, okay, well, that sort of Lance the boil, and everyone's going to understand that the next person is going to have to go back to business, and maybe this was like some personal vendetta. But now it just seems like no. I mean, especially because Jordan made such a strong showing, right? There's no Lansing boils. Yeah, <laughs> it's no Lansing boils. I don't know where people get this idea. These people are. It's a cancer. It's metastasis. It's not a boil. It's just spreading. Nancy Mace now has it. And it's and it's and it doesn't go away until there's some determination in 2024 whether Trump is the nominee, more likely than not. Although I have to say his recent statements about Israel are just I mean, I don't know how, how they put the genie back in that, but I've always wondered that about Trump. And then defeat in a general election. And then, you know, this idea that you can manage this piece of the Republican Party, or no, let me put it differently, that, that the Republican Party is anything but a losing party, will have to be addressed by whatever comes out of the ashes of the Republican Party. But that has to happen. And it's not at all clear that that will happen. I continue to think that as a national matter, as a matter for the health of the country, what's happening with the Republicans is tragic and incredibly damaging. But for the Republicans themselves as a political party interested in electoral success, I actually don't think it is harmful because this party is interested in, maybe it's not interested in this. It is indifferent to the creating, to creating chaos and dysfunction. The more chaos and dysfunction there is, the more disillusioned voters get and the more cynical about government voters get And the more that happens, the better this current Republican Party does. And so I don't think that this amount of chaos or government shutdown will actually impact Republican votes in 2024. I think it will impact the country. I think the country will be a poorer place and a miserated place, a place with a less functioning political system. But I don't think that Republicans will get fewer votes relative to Democrats as a result of this. I mean, look, the thing about the House in particular is that the big sort, you know, the way in which people have moved in the country to separate themselves politically and then also gerrymandering means that there are only like 14 or 15 Republicans in swing districts who could pay a price. But it is also true that, you know, on the margins, if a few people shift over and those 
representatives lose, that would shift the balance of power in the House. And maybe that's some kind of wake up call here. So maybe there is some kind of price to pay, David. I mean, what, how many wake up? What do you think? These people have hit snooze button. What kind of wake up call do you think the hardcore MAGA Republicans in this country are waiting for? Well, it's a question is, can you peel some people who are less committed away yes. from that group but, and that oh. being enough to affect who's in control of the House, right? And then you might have some people who are actually interested in power because some of these people are opportunists, right? I mean, there's some of that going on, just like performance and posturing, and they might move when they see how the wind is blowing. But the wind has to blow differently. It hasn't yet. Yeah, I think this change does not come through the House. It comes through the White House. And until Trump is not the leader of the party. That too, I believe, could have been dealt with on January 7th, 2021. This will not get resolved through the House. The electoral system works. The election system is too aligned with what is Trump going to do. He's been silent so far on the Scalise stuff. I think he's at least said that he's not going to support him. So that, that also harms him. But Look, this is Trump's party now. And the idea that there's a GOP outside of Trump, it's just wishful thinking by Mitt Romney. I mean, it's like, come on. Well, Mitt Romney isn't even engaging in the witful thinking. Yeah, I mean, like he's like, yeah, there's a GOP left, but I'm not here for it because there is no GOP left outside of Trump. Well, with that cheery finish. <laughs> well, there's an election coming From Professor Kaya. It's a hard Let's, week. It's a hard week. Let's go to cocktail chatter because it's such a hard week. When you've had a really freaking hard week, Ebaz, what are you going to be chattering about with the little Bazelons? So I was at a Jewish wedding last weekend in which there was a lot of concern for Israel, but also a lot of joy and dancing. And the rabbi started things with a lesson from the Talmud that I really appreciated. So there's a passage and it's called Tractate Smachot, also known as Evel Rabbatai, apparently. And it deals with mourning. And it has the the following scenario in it. You have a funeral procession and a wedding procession, and they meet in the middle of a town. Who gets the right of way? Do you guys want to offer guesses? Wedding procession. Yes, it's the wedding procession. And the reason for that is some sense that Jews in the end are about hope and that there has to be that the joy that the possibility of the life cycle continuing has to take precedence, even though Jews also obviously take mourning and death and grief really seriously. I've just been kind of holding on to that story this week that, you know, life has to go on and that there has to be room for simcha, which is the Hebrew word for happiness, even in the midst of all of this horror. That's so lovely, Emily. Now I feel like I have to raise my game. My God. No, nah, um, you don't. No, I am, you know, to the, I'll, I'll do the hope one too. I was going to do one about my dog, but I want to elevate my standards as well. So my youngest of three kids, as Emily knows, is in this, I'm going to be an empty nester next year. We are in the college application process and it's gotten us into interesting conversations with our kid whose name is Jeremiah. And this week, it just the coincidence or this weekend, I was home. I was working because of everything going on here, but I was home because he wanted to finish some of his applications, which included sort of a discussion 
about his name. My my background is Lebanese. My parents and the family is Lebanese descent. My husband is uh, Jewish and grandson of Eastern European Jewish diaspora. And the kids are being raised Jewish. And we sort of have this blended family. And um, Jeremiah's name comes from, comes from a poem. The poem is about a true blue American boy named Jeremiah who is given the choice is asked to choose between ice cream and cake in terms of the dessert that he wants. And uh, he says loudly, I'll have them both. And that sort of uh, is, I think, a way that we think about our family, but hopefully that all that we can think about the world that, that at some stage we're not trying to annihilate each other and our past, but that we'll have them both. And so I was thinking about his name and maybe it's a you know, American hope that we can have them both or all. Both and. The the funeral pr- procession and the wedding reception go together. They walk together. My chatter, I'm going to do two quick chatters. One is I want to suggest to people that they read Matt Iglesias's piece this week, The Deaths of Despair Narrative is Wrong. It's all about how the the story of Deaths of Despair, which is this idea that Americans by the thousands and tens of thousands are losing their lives early because of suicide, because of drug overdoses, because of guns, because of depression, because of sort of chronic illnesses brought on by depression, that actually when you dig into those numbers, Matt says and argues pretty persuasively, you see a huge opioid spike and you see a huge impact on the lowest 10% of Americans, but that that you just compare it to similar circumstances in Europe and you realize it's not, there's not a despair thing going on. It's just that American policy on opioids has been very bad and has exposed lots and lots of people to opioids and that's what's causing it. And that there isn't actually, there isn't actually a spike in despair deaths. There's a spike in overdose deaths that is being, that is unique to America because America has bad opioid policies. I'm doing I'm not quite doing justice to Matt's argument, which is more sophisticated than that, but it's a really interesting piece saying that taking this out of the emotional Americans feel bad realm into the let's make some public policy that prevents people from getting opioid drugs so easily. That was one of my chatters. The other one is I saw I was on a plane this week and watched a fantastic movie that I would recommend to anybody who likes a good micro narrative. It's the BlackBerry movie. It's called BlackBerry. And it's about the rise and fall of the company Research in Motion, which made the BlackBerry. And it's a Canadian company that had brilliant technical founders and then a business guy who came in and helped them build the company. And they're a mismatched set of people. The company was way ahead of the curve and then fell way behind the curve when Apple showed up. And it's really fun. It's a very fun movie about technology, about building a business, about corporate culture, and just can't recommend it enough. Check it out. Awesome. Listeners, you have chatters. Please keep them coming. Please email them to us at gabfest at slate.com, something that you're talking about with your friends at your cocktail parties. And our listener chatter this week comes from Deb Knox in Pittsburgh. Hello, Gabfest. This is Deb Knox from Pittsburgh. I wanted to share that little Amal visited our city a few weeks ago. Amal is a 12-foot-tall puppet of a 10-year-old Syrian refugee created by Handspring Puppet Company. She's now visiting 40 U.S. cities as part of a world tour. She acts like a 10-year-old roaming off the path, curious about her surroundings, bouncing to the rhythm of music around her. 
In Pittsburgh, she visited the Mr. Rogers statue and put on a giant red sweater. Photos do not capture her magic. And as my sister said, we must give witness to this symbol of displaced persons on the move. If she comes to your town, I promise you will be amazed. For more information, check out walkwithamal, A-M-A-L, dot org. Thanks. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jared Downing this week. Dana is on vacation. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of audio for Slate. Please email us your chatter at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and the always game Juliet Kayam, who came in on no notice and was brilliant as always, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running as an independent, he announced this week. He's going to run for president as an independent. Cornell West is also running as an independent. No Labels, the well-funded centrist organization of some sort, is still holding out the possibility of running another candidate and really screwing the 2024 election up. So as it stands, in recent polls, Emily, Kennedy in a three-way race with Biden and Trump, and I'm just, everything I am saying, I'm putting in air quotes right now, in a three-way race with Biden and Trump, Kennedy is pulling at 14%, whereas Biden and Trump are in the low 30s, with Trump slightly ahead. Is that meaningful? Is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. a meaningful candidate, Emily Bazelon? No, I would say it is not meaningful, and it's just people's way of expressing discontent with the other two candidates. I can't imagine that people like really understand who he is because he's totally batshit and ridiculous. And, you know, he has the Kennedy name. So that adds a kind of veneer of credibility, but those numbers will come down. And teeth has the Kennedy teeth, most important, more important than the name. Juliet, you clearly are a huge Kennedy stan. Oh, yeah, exactly. What do you think um, President Kennedy's administration is going to be like? Well, they'll be like reverse vaccines. Like we have to get the stuff out of our systems. Like we'll have to like somehow figure out a way. As we say, he is bat crazy and is using his- Are you one of those people who doesn't curse in public? No, I totally curse in public. Is this public though? Can I curse here? Yeah. Bat shit FTC. crazy. Did Emily okay, curse? I- yeah, I said bad shit, but that you did. Oh, we used. That. I forgot that you, you said. Did, yeah, you said it, you said it. that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 